0: I'm El Kemihara and welcome to episode 11 of Subject to Power. It is almost impossible to capture the complexities of our time, to have a cohesive discussion about all the wicked problems we face. But when you have the pleasure of talking to a brilliant thinker like my guest Susan Hawthorne, who effortlessly weaves together past, present, and future and sorts what we need to pay attention to from what we should ignore, everything makes much more sense. Susan is an Australian poet, as well as an author of a long list of fiction and nonfiction books. She is a political commentator, as well as founder of the feminist publishing house Spinifex, which just turned 30 years old. She reads and translates myths and philosophy in their original languages of ancient Greek and Sanskrit, and she's a former circus aerialist and acrobat. In this roaming conversation, we talk about the vortex that is the patriarchy, its many Trojan horses, and lots and lots of essential truths about being a woman in this world.
1: The first poem I'm going to read is the title poem from the sequence, The Sacking of the Muses. I wrote this sequence ahead of, during and after the election of Donald Trump and the muses, nine muses, from the ancient Greek tradition, and they cover things like epic poetry, history, astronomy, and they're the daughters of Mnemosyne. She's the goddess of memory. So the muses are all about memory, particularly oral memory. So the sacking of the muses. The muses have been sacked. Their role in the pantheon sold up for some new real estate venture. The muses have fled, all nine of them, in a mathematical and artistic frenzy. They are downcast. What's a muse to do to amuse herself in these penny-pinching days? How can a poet expect to have her work taken seriously when profit is deemed all? The muses are unemployed, on the dole, living on the smell of an oily rag their hearts raging.
0: That's great. Thank you. So you are a poet, but you're also a lot of other things, an author and publisher of Spinifex. And I wanted to talk to you about your work in women in prehistory. But then I also want to talk to you about your writing About more contemporary times, in particular Vortex, the crises of patriarchy, and the themes that you bring up in that book. So, maybe you can start by just telling me a little bit about your
1: journey into women in prehistory. Well, it started when I traveled to Europe in 1977 and I spent some time in Greece. I just loved Greece, and I particularly loved going to Crete. There are no fortifications. So, there are these huge palaces. The place was rich. They were in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. They could have been invaded from all directions. But actually, that wasn't what happened. Instead, they had a peaceful society, but the level of equality was much greater certainly, much greater than our current situation, which is truly awful. And women played a big role in the society. So, you know, there were lots of things that I I saw in, in Crete in 1977. It was like having an epiphany about how the world had been. And while I was travelling around, I was reading the Greek myths and I decided that I would learn modern Greek when I got back to Australia, which I did. And then I decided, actually, what I really want to do is read people like Sappho and the Greek myths. So I thought, well, I'll enroll in ancient Greek. So I did that. And after a year of doing that, I got a scholarship to start a PhD, uh, which was called the structure of belief systems in the ancient world. You know, this is a huge topic. I don't know how I ever thought that I could do this, but What it did was it meant that I started to look at the stories, the myths, the traditions, and what they might mean if you came at them from a radical feminist point of view. The problem was that after a year in the philosophy department, I discovered that really all they wanted me to look at was Salser and other postmodernists and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, which I did, you know, being a good PhD student, but I found it really frustrating and boring. And I realised that actually what I really wanted to do was keep on studying Greek. So I dropped the PhD and went on with my Greek studies and It was fabulous, you know, I mean, reading the Baha'i in Greek, reading Medea, reading some Sophocles, Euripides, and and a bit of the philosophers, Plato, Aristotle and the like. So it it gave me a a good grounding for understanding some of the historical side of things. And in my thesis at the end of this course, I wrote about the Homeric hymns to Demeter and Aphrodite What I found really interesting was the way in which the power struggles were going on and the power struggles for a goddess like Demeter, whose daughter Persephone is abducted by the god Hades and then she is raped and taken to the underworld. And in response, what Demeter does is she says, "Okay, you have my daughter. I'm going to make sure nothing grows. And so a drought comes and nothing will grow and there's no rain. And the gods start to get a bit desperate because if there's no food, there are no people, and if there are no people, there are no worshippers. So eventually they offer uh, a compromise and they say, well, you know, you can have her back but she has to come back here for six months of the year. Persephone actually didn't want to do that but she was tricked into eating the seeds of the pomegranate and so that means that she has to go back every six months to be with this abusive male god and you know it in many ways i think it represents the situation that so many women find themselves in they find themselves in an abusive relationship they want to get out maybe they have family on side, maybe they don't, people try to do things, but it doesn't quite work and they get stuck, they get captured. For me, that was, I think, a very instructive piece of work. And the one about Aphrodite is quite different because she's the goddess of love, you know, and everybody's meant to fall over themselves when the goddess of love is around. And then there's a relationship that happens between a mortal and her. And in the end, gets the upper hand, even though he's not a god. And again, it was the the raptures of power there that I found interesting. And the way that even a mortal who doesn't have as much power as the immortal gets the upper hand. Why is this? Well, the answer is patriarchy. (laughs) A very simple answer. And I think in in the case of both of these hymns, and probably some of the others as as well, what you're seeing is a tracing of the shift from I won't call it matriarchy, but I will call it matrilineal or matrifocal societies to one that is patriarchal.
0: What did you learn about women in prehistory? I did
1: actually work as a side editor on Miriam Dexter's The Source Book: Whence the Goddess, The Source Book of Goddesses and also Gloria Orenstein's book, The Reflowering of the Goddess. So I worked doing some editing on both of those books and I was really thrilled to work on them. And and I keep going back to Miriam's book all the time. It is just filled with so much information and I can't always take it all in. And during that time, I managed to hear Maria Gimbutas give a lecture in Los Angeles. And truly, it was amazing. It was like watching somebody unwrap a puzzle and layer by layer, she would describe what she was seeing this layer, that layer. And by the time you got to the center, You understood everything you needed to know. She explained, for example, that an image that she had up in front of her was not the face of a man with a beard. It was actually a woman and pubic hair looking into the old things and trying to understand how you can look at these things. So I'm very grateful to having heard Maria Gimbutas give that lecture because it gave me a better way in to some of these things.
0: A lot of my listeners probably won't recognize the name Maria Gimbuda. So she was an archaeologist by trade, but she had a lot of other skills as well. Yeah. How would you explain her?
1: She was a Lithuanian archaeologist. That was kind of the beginning, but she was much more. She had understanding of linguistics. And because she wasn't in the Western world, she had a lot of access to things coming out of the Soviet Union that nobody in the West had ever seen. But Lithuania, it's interesting, you know, there's this ancient language called Proto-Indo-European. Proto-Indo-European is the layer that goes back before ancient Greek, before Latin, before Sanskrit. It's a connecting language across from Middle and Western Asia through to Ireland. And Lithuanian and Sanskrit have quite a lot in common, as do Gaelic and Sanskrit. And the reason for this is because they are at the ends of the Proto-Indo-European language spread. The Lithuanian, the Irish, the Indian actually have a lot in common. So she was able to see, because she's Lithuanian, she was able to see connections between words that us mere mortals who don't speak in <laughs> um, can't see. Oh, that's great. She
0: caused a lot of uh, controversy in her field of archaeology because, well, she's now considered, I guess, a feminist archaeologist because she made such a strong claim of a pre-patriarchal society that was egalitarian and matriarchal in nature.
1: And she talked about the invasion of the patriarchal peoples, particularly those coming across from the Russian steppes, who were pastoralists and horse riders and war was was something they did on a daily basis. Uh, And, you know, they're coming into a relatively peaceful society, one that is not expansionist in the way that the pastoralists were. There was a lot of resistance to that. Archaeologists, you know, there are some fabulous archaeologists. I mean, James Mellart's work on on Chatel Hayuk was wonderful. And I visited there a few years ago, and it was wonderful to be there and see it. But in the meantime, his work has been demonized, as, as has hers. And in places like Malta, where you have these great, big female statues, you know, who are enormous. And a fellow called Colin Renfrew, who's part of the Cambridge School, he has had a big impact on the the way in which these things are presented in Malta in a place called Menajdra. And there's a sign at one stage and it says, well, maybe these are males and they're a bit like sumo wrestlers. Like you look at a sumo wrestler and it starts as a wide triangle and goes down to a narrow one. Well, the women start as a narrow triangle and go down to a wide one. You know, the deposit of fat in women's and men's bodies is completely different. And, you know, archaeologists like Colin Renfrew, who have a different agenda, you know, it's just not right to to make those claims. It's, it's incorrect. Yeah, and
0: I, I guess I don't understand why... Well, I understand the resistance, but why is it so impossible to believe that that we had a peaceful, egalitarian, matriarchally based society at some point?
1: Well, because if men think about women, some do, many don't, it doesn't include the ability to do things well and to be a powerful force. And to organise societies in a different way because it's just not there. The expectations are completely different. It makes me very sad that so many men see women simply as sex objects. But as you know, women have become just bodies, territories to take over. So... Yeah, it, it's a very sad state of affairs, but the publicity program for patriarchy has been going for some 5,000 years.
0: Yes, yes, it has. I wanted to jump back to your story. You have a publishing house called Spinifex with your partner, Renata Klein. Can you tell me a little bit about how Spinifex came to be?
1: It's a radical feminist press. We started it in 1991. We were up at Kakadu National Park and we were sitting around talking, having a holiday. said, why don't we start a publishing house? I said, well, look, if we're going to do that, I've got a name, which I'd had in the back of my head, thought maybe for a magazine or something. I said, how about spinifex?" And we both love the spinifex plant. When you see it from a distance, it looks soft and inviting, but if, as is sometimes necessary in the desert, there are no trees, and you need to relieve yourself, you discover it's quite spiky. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's also um, a desert plant that holds the earth together. All of those things suggest that this was this was a good name. And so, in 1991, we decided to publish our first four books. I'd been working at Penguin for four years as a editor, commissioning editor senior editor. And in 1990, when Australia had a recession, a whole lot of things that I had been able to push through previously, just now were not happening. And so I got very frustrated and I said, well, okay, it's enough time at Penguin. I've learned what I need to know. We also knew a lot of writers who were having trouble getting published because the moment had passed in terms of their politics. And so we could see that there were chances for us to do things like that. So in our first year, we actually managed to get a couple of translations, a couple of short listings for awards. And and so we thought, oh, okay, so we can do this. (laughs) Because when we started, we thought, you know, we might only last a year. Who knows? Because independent publishing companies do have very short lives quite frequently. And so we did seven books in our second year. We did a wonderful book called Nothing Matters by Summer Broderick, which is a feminist critique of postmodernism. We just reprinted it this year because it is just as important now as it was 31 years ago. And that's something we also find, that that we tend to be ahead of the cultural curve. We used to think we were 10 years ahead, but we've actually discovered we're now 30 years ahead of the cultural curve
0: (laughs) So I wanted to move over, in your book, Vortex, The Crisis of Patriarchy, you do talk about a big theme is land as relationship, but both in the present and the past in prehistory. You write about disconnecting humans from land or separation between self
1: and nature. In indigenous Australia, at least, the land is not owned. The land is a relationship between humans and the land and the humans have a responsibility to look after the land, that there are certain people in a group who might have more responsibility. They also have rights over certain tracts of land, areas of land. So I was introduced to this idea of, land as relationship by understanding more about how Indigenous societies worked. And when I look around the world, you see this replicated also. It's not just in Australia that this happens. And in my previous big non-fiction book called Wild Politics, Feminism, Globalisation and Biodiversity, I have a whole chapter on land as relationship or land as possession. And so I talk about the very big difference that there is and how that operates and if you see the land as your possession just as if you if men see women as their possession then that changes the nature of the relationship whereas if you see it as a relational thing then both sides are involved in it and if you start to dominate the land the land will stop producing it will get out of balance you talk about patriarchy as kind of a
0: force in the world you also talk about in your book vortex you talk about the vortex as a kind of a metaphor for this force this destructive force in the world can you talk a little bit about how you see this
1: the vortex is actually a tornado a tornado is the absolutely best definition in some way the vortex is that circular movement of air, or it could be water, that goes, spins down and it destroys everything in its wake. It also has a literary meaning, which really intrigued me. Uh, It means a really bad situation that you can't get out of. So put those two together (laughs) and um, you get a sense of how patriarchy moves. It is this terrible destruction that is out of control, but also the people inside that situation can't get out of it and the other term that I I use a lot in the book is the Trojan horse so the Trojan horse the way in which patriarchy uses a Trojan horse is it pretends that they're offering something really good but it's a trick it's a trick and When you actually unpack what's inside that particular Trojan horse, whatever it is, it turns out that you're on the losing side.
0: Another quote in your book that talks about taking land or separating the people from the land Say, within colonialist practices, assimilation is used as a weapon to separate colonized people from language, history, healing practices, methods of farming and cooking, all linked to knowledge systems. The same system is used against women. Women are told they must fit into men's system of work, speak men's language, and service men according to their wants.
1: The two concept both separation and disconnection are really critical to understand how how they work. Also the concept of otherness. If you start separating people out from their society and the process of colonisation is precisely this. Cherry Smiley in a book that we're going to be published in the next couple of months, Not Sacred, Not Scores, Indigenous Feminism Redefined, talks about the way in which the development of prostitution in Canada came about precisely through colonisation, that the European invasion of North America was accompanied by prostitution. And the same is true in Australia and it's true in every other colonised country that you can think of. And I also use the term deterritoriality. Which I discovered in a book by an American writer called Valerie Kulets. And she was writing about the impact of the nuclear industry on the Western states of the US. And she says that it involves the ultimate separation between self and nature. You know, how can you live on land that has been bombed with a, a nuclear weapon? The same thing happened in Australia, a place called Maralinga. There are people. Aboriginal people from that area whose families were devastated, many died. My cousin died of leukaemia. Where we lived was in direct line of where the strontium-90 went over. Luckily, my mother kept all of us off the grass because she was alerted to that. And when it comes to things like language, one of the things that happens, again, you see it in, in North America, the Indian schools, and either the stealing of children from families or forbidding them to speak their mother tongue. And if you're forbidden from naming all the animals and plants around you, you lose your knowledge. And, in fact, you know, in Australia, they were the only people who knew these terms and who knew... What the plants were good for or not good for, if they were poisonous or not. So, a lot of knowledge, real knowledge, was lost then. And what happens now? The biotech companies come in, they say, Oh, look, we found a, a plant that's really good for treating cancer, um, like the WA uh, West Australian smoke bush. Oh, well, we can make money. We invented this. Well, no, actually, you wouldn't have known about it if the local people hadn't told you something about it at some stage. So the profiteering goes on. You say the colonised
0: people become homeless in their own lands in the same way that the abused and traumatised woman is homeless in her own body. Yeah, I just feel like that's exactly what happens.
1: Rhonda Kaplan wrote the first sentence about prostitution and being homeless in the body, she had worked with women who were involved in the war in former Yugoslavia and who were in camps, refugee camps. And once you get got a refugee camp, you get prostitution there and you get rape, you get abuse, you get all of these things. The other person who's, whose work is really good on that um, is Rachel Moran and her book Paid for My Journey Through Prostitution, and she doesn't say precisely that, but she says something very, very similar. So you get the same sorts of stories coming from Indigenous people whose knowledge, whose land has been colonised, who've been ripped away from their cultures through language and other, other means, from women who've managed to get out of the prostitution industry. You get these patterns of dispossession being experienced by different groups of people but almost identical in terms of the way they think about it, write about it, talk about it. I wanted to uh, jump to something
0: else. So obviously we think about feminism as a liberation movement from patriarchy, but at the moment in this era that we are in, it is being appropriated and watered down. And can you speak a little bit about what is happening to feminism and what it what it means?
1: Well, the way in which feminism is distorted is exactly what you would expect, <laughs> knowing these the way in which these things operate. The feminism that gets into the media is either a really watered down liberal feminism where getting more women on the boards of rich companies is seen as a plus or getting women into the military or women being able to have their own pornography companies make their own pornography that's all seen as feminist now i think that is i think all of that is either non-feminist or anti-feminist certainly in the case of the prostitution and, and pornography so what we're experiencing is a kind of media feminism, an appropriated feminism, a feminism that is individualised. So if one woman does something great, oh, fantastic, the feminists have, have done it again. But in fact, radical feminism is a collectively based feminism. We don't have any leaders. Some become famous for a period of time. Some become famous and stay famous But that is not what radical feminism is. Radical feminism is about structural change. It's about shifting the ways in which the world operates. And, you know, when it comes to things like prostitution, I mean, it's absolutely clear to me that we have to end prostitution. Abolishing prostitution is just like abolishing slavery was but abolishing slavery was was not considered a great idea at the time but now it is considered a very good idea however the slavery of women does actually continue and it certainly continues in prostitution whether it is prostitution in one's own local community or whether it's prostitution that has crossed borders both examples of slavery and the only reason that women do that is because they are desperate, because they were captured at a young age. And it happens to many young women. They get caught for some reason. They get trapped. They, they have debts to pay off. They have family to support. They're in poverty or they're homeless. You know, there are all sorts of reasons why women get captured by the sex industry. And why you're in it, you can't see that that's what's happened to you. It takes leaving the industry to get a bit of distance, to see what's happened, to see the systems that, that played out for you. And then you have liberal
0: feminists telling you it's sex work and sex work is work.
1: Yeah. You know, it's not work. You know, the interesting thing is the way in which the sex work unions operate. The sex work unions are run by pimps, and they they do what's called astroturfing, which is when you pretend that something is a grassroots organisation, but actually it's fake grass, it's astroturf. And so the the so-called prostitutes unions, even when they call themselves prostitutes collectives, which some have, they are actually run by people making money. So it's like having the mining company running the union. And, I mean, unions are, are in a bad way at the moment, even in Australia, worse in America, absolutely. I mean, unions have been on the nose for a very long time in the US because, of course, the big companies don't want to have unions because unions give the workers and give the poor people and the, the people are on the lines more say. And the only way you can do it is by having some sort of collective action. And the same applies to feminism. You know, radical feminism, again, is about collective action. And radical feminists did learn stuff from the left union people. I know that when I became a feminist in my first years, a lot lot of the women who were there and who'd been active for many years, they were old unionists. They understood what was necessary. And us younger women at the time learned a lot from them. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you say to resist one needs to be clear about what is to be resisted and whose actions are to be resisted.
1: This is where postmodernism comes in because we're talking about war before and what we have now, whether it's warfare out there or whether it's warfare against women, is a kind of postmodern warfare. And the difficulty about that, I mean, If you're at war, like, you know, if you've got barricades and you're having an action and so forth and one group of people is on this side and the other is on the other side, you can at least see who you're fighting against. With a postmodern war, it's never clear who the enemy is and, of course, then the enemy comes disguised as one of you and you're meant to agree with them and you see this with the transgender lobby. So a postmodern war makes it very hard to identify those you're fighting against. It really does. And I think it's hard for
0: most people, especially those who are not in academia, to understand, you know, postmodernism as a concept. It's sort of, it's hard to grasp, but if you could break it down, sort of explain it as a concept, how would
1: you explain it? Well, for starters, it's very individualized. So we've become all very dispersed and that's part of the postmodern system. One of the first things I learned about postmodernism is that you can only speak from your own perspective. Well, that means that you cannot speak on behalf of your sister. You cannot speak on behalf Of somebody whose political action you agree with, if you can only speak on what is now called lived experience, which is the latest fun phrase, if you can only speak from that basis. I mean, your lips are sealed on many, many things. However, the postmodernists on the other side don't seem to have any problem about speaking out. (laughs) But if a radical feminist does it, then she's Called a turf and a swerf. These are terms that are put out there to silence us, and silencing is a big part of the postmodern system. And the fact that postmodernism just comes out of the universities and young people go into universities, they're told this is really important and this is really hard, and you have to spend all your time thinking about postmodernism. Well, you've got no time to get involved in theatre, arts political action, thinking in fact, (laughs) because postmodernism distracts you from all of this and it's a kind of institutionalised philosophy and it's one of the things that I was being pushed towards uh, when I enrolled in my first PhD, the one I pulled out of, and so I read a lot of this stuff back in about nineteen eighty. And it still makes no more sense to me now than it did then. I mean, I understand it. I can read it and I can understand it, but it is senseless. And as a political philosophy, it is no use at all. And in fact, what it does is it undermines any sensible political action.
0: To me, it's a little bit like there are no essential truths, you know. <laughs> yeah
1: yeah, well, it's really interesting that just at the moment when women really were getting into our bodies and acknowledging how important our bodies were, or when women were were becoming fantastic writers, you know, so suddenly the a the author is dead, and B, anything you say about your own body is essentialist. No, actually. Well, one could counter that these days and say it's a lived experience. (laughs) But, you know, that doesn't count if a radical feminist says it. So, yeah, the whole body thing becomes really jeopardised. You know, you get cyber bodies and you get transhuman bodies and you get transgender bodies and you get bodies at work in sex work as if, There is no feeling. And certainly with the transhumanist future that some of them have in mind, there will be no feeling and there will be no sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. Decontextualizing everything, disconnecting everything from their context. And with that, of course, comes, you know, decontextualizing sort of these critical things that we grapple with sexism and racism. And you have a quote that says, neoliberalists pretend that we live in a society that is free of racism and sexism that has done away with class and that everyone is free to pursue his own goals.
1: Like little atoms looking for home. <laughs> <You> know. <laughs> and I think, well, who are the people who think that postmodernism is so fabulous? Well, you only have to look at who wrote the most important texts, Foucault, Lacan, Derrida, all Frenchmen, White, and they had all the advantages and all the privileges that came with that and then who takes it up as it spreads around the world. Some people of colour decide to take it up I don't know why. Some people who thought they might be feminists decide to take it up, but it turns feminism on its head when they do. And it's stripped back, stripped back to nothingness. And Summer Broderib in her book, Uh, Nothing Matters, she has a whole lot of chapter titles with the word nothing or empty or all of those kinds of words that are nihilism. And it is, it's a very nihilist nothingness kind of, of philosophy, and it takes us nowhere. As you said, you know, I mean, as, as you said, I said, um, <laughs> <laughs> you neoliberalism, know, yeah, it pretends as if it's politically irrelevant when in fact power is encased utterly inside those philosophies, an unrecognised power. That's the
0: key right there. I mean, when it it comes to war on women, I think it's hard to proclaim that there is a war on women outside radical feminist circles. Um, The general public or general world doesn't perceive that we're in the midst of a war on women. But when you look at the real things like numbers of murdered women and domestic violence statistics and so on we very much are it becomes this sort of invisible thing that you can't talk about or fight if you can't name the concrete details of things
1: Mm -hmm. those concrete details also part of that is the way in which these things get funded and who funds them So in terms of the prostitution industry, a man like George Soros is very, very implicated and his organisation is called the Open Society Foundation. You think open for whom? And, you know, he does funding um, of decriminalisation. Decriminalisation to people who don't know the language and the system sounds like a great idea, but what it actually does is that it gives no protection to the women who are caught in the sex industry and it makes it possible for the pimps and the brothels to just do basically whatever they want. And we experienced this in Australia when Victoria legalised prostitution back in 1984 and the way in which that was pushed was, oh, it'll make it safer. The other thing that wasn't said was the state will earn more money this way because they will have to pay taxes. That's one of the things that was put forward, that it helps governments spend more on health and on education. The fact that children get groomed, uh, that they get used to passing the local massage parlour, which we all know is a brothel, and so forth, is, is another Trojan horse. Very much a Trojan horse. I'm
0: just thinking about Germany and, again, the argument that legalizing prostitution or decriminalizing prostitution somehow will lower the rate of prostitution or (laughs) make less prostitutes. I think Germany is a great example of the opposite being true. Germany is now known as the brothel of Europe. The more prostitution, the more prostitution is what we're seeing.
1: And the more violence and, you know, prostitutes very frequently, not just violated, but raped and murdered. And those things don't get counted as part of the costs.
0: You talked about
1: Cassandra,
0: the prophetess Cassandra before, and you have a chapter in your book called The Feminist Cassandras, kind of pointing to the feminists as the people who are, you say, naming the deeds And that is precisely what feminists are best known for. We're punished for speaking up against violence, hatred, exploitation and oppression. And when we name violators, men and patriarchal institutions, the punishment is severe.
1: Cassandra is another one of these wonderful characters from Greek mythology, again from the Trojan War. She's the one who makes prophecies, but nobody believes her. And what had happened was that when she was a child, the serpent came and licked out her ears, which gave her the the ability to understand what was going on around her and be truthful about it. But then during the war, Apollo comes down to his uh, temple and he, he rapes her or intends to rape her, and she resists him. She resists him really magnificently and he then says, okay, well, you know, uh, I know you can prophesy, but from now on no one will believe you. And so that becomes her thing and and that's how feminists, radical feminists often feel. We speak, we say stuff, we analyse things, we put out really good articles, books, put submissions to government do all of the right things, go on the media and so forth. No one believes us. No one listens. And no one is taking seriously the analysis that we're putting forth. So I love the character of Cassandra. She really embodies our position as political activists.
0: You can see this phenomena of not just not being believed but being sort of vilified for the message you're delivering with the trans ideology which I want to to talk about in your book you connect postmodernism which we talked about and queer theory in how you talk about trans ideology can you explain your thinking around this
1: well, I remember when the queer film festival first came to Melbourne and I remember standing up and saying, well, you, this is a, you know, it's a good thing. However, I noticed that there probably won't be any acknowledgement of lesbians in this because lesbians get disappeared under the greater thing of queer. And when people who are outside of that community think queer, they don't think lesbians, they think gay men. And also because gay men have a better media presence and there's more understanding and there's more acceptance of gay men. But in terms of the transgender lobby, I mean, one of the, the things that is a huge misrepresentation is the difference between sex and gender and also between sexual orientation and gender identity Those four terms, there's a lot of slippage. Sex is what you're born with, sex is in your DNA, and there is no way to change that. And one of the easy ways to see that is that so called trans, inverted commas, women, they can try how they like to get pregnant, but actually they won't, they can't. And the reason why so called trans men who we're told Bishop call he, can get pregnant is because they are women. You know, the logic, the lack of logic, the lack of scientific rigour is extraordinary. Even the scientists get captured by this. And you wonder... Didn't you pass first-year biology? (laughs) Didn't anybody tell you about the birds and the bees? (laughs) My level of incredulity over this is just amazing. There's also the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, sexual orientation is uh, summarised by the words LGB, lesbian, gay, bisexual. It's the people you choose to have sex with your sexual relations about same sex if it's lesbian and gay or both sexes if you happen to be bisexual, these are orientations. They are not an identity or a gendered identity. Now, gender identity, you can be heterosexual if you're a gender identity and that applies to the TQ plus part of that LGBTQ plus Acronym. These are not orientations. A transgender person is acting out the most specific sexual stereotypes of masculinity and femininity, and just because they're doing it from the opposite sex doesn't really change anything. All it does is it brings in a very destructive sexual stereotype Instead. Now the T's, the trans, needed to get involved somehow in the LGB. And then it got expanded to TQ and now plus plus is anything. As Kaiser says in her book on the meaning of sex, there are at least 72 genders now. <laughs> the other part, and it is often LGBTIQ plus. The I is the intersex. Now, the intersex community does not want to be part of this, and they have specified that. They said we are not part of this uh, rainbow flag thing. And in their official writings, that's their position.
0: You were talking about specific issues that arise for, for lesbians with trans women, which is very in the media at the moment talk of the cotton ceiling uh, which i just find <laughs> so horrific
1: the cotton ceiling allows a so-called trans and in inverted commas woman to say that it's okay that he rapes a lesbian he can justify it because otherwise he's been kept out by the cotton ceiling and the cotton the cotton refers to the underwear that women wear, and, of course, if you've got a penis and you want to have sex with somebody who has a vagina, it's a bit hard if there's a pair of knickers in between. But it's such a silly concept, Uh, and there are so many silly concepts (laughs) that come out of this. And, and I I mean, even using the word trans women is an act of colonisation because it's claiming something that somebody else has for your own And when you follow through the argument that I've been making about colonisation, it becomes very obvious that that's what's going on. And even more so when it comes to women-only spaces, do you want to go to you've just left an abusive relationship, you've gone to a shelter or whatever, and you get welcomed at the door by a a trans, inverted commas, woman, you're not going to feel very safe. Or in rape crisis centres as well. You know, I've been around in the women's movement for a very long time and we first started seeing, as they were called at the time, transsexuals coming to feminist events and a lot of us were not happy about it but we just tried to ignore them. We certainly didn't expect that in this day and age we wouldn't be able to go to a pride march and be safe and that is the case now. And, you know, lesbians have initiated a lot of really important actions. And, you know, lesbians are full-time activists because our whole lives then get caught up in it. We don't have to go home and apologise to the man we live with. Oh, sorry, I was out doing an action and, I, you know, sorry I couldn't cook dinner for you. As lesbians, we're probably out there together. So there are reasons for lesbians being such big activists, but it's also because we're at the pointy end of patriarchy and we we feel many of these things very early and that's certainly in my case that was that was true and i i've now been writing about this for about 20 years and the 1970s stuff was you know no no big thing but to be personally affected by it as i was around 2000 2001 that shifted my level of knowledge you know much more i was in a women's circus I was an aerialist and an acrobat. I used to do a lot of acrobalance, which is, involves two people. And a man who called himself a woman decided he'd gone to a, a show, thought it was fabulous, and thought he'd like to join the circus. Now, the circus was set up initially and very specifically to work with women who were survivors of sexual assault. So if you are doing a balance, in which you've got your head between somebody's legs, you don't really want to be having your head in the legs of a man if you're a survivor of sexual assault. And there are other aerials positions where, you know, there's one called a breast hold. You know, you don't, you don't want to be doing that, especially if you're a survivor of sexual assault. It split the circus for a whole year. I suggested that they say just withdraw your application. This is not right. Well, they didn't, and so a lot of things fell apart. It had a you know really profound effect because one of the things about circus is you have to trust. The level of trust is very, very high, and you have to trust who you're working with. So, yeah, that had a, a big effect on, on my understanding of trans. And that was 20
0: years ago, and so much has transpired in this arena since then. So much worse. Uh, So much worse, yes. Young women who have their, you know, healthy bodies cut up and changed radically with wrong sex hormones. I'm just wondering about will there be a moral reckoning for doctors and nurses? I I don't know how they justify what they do.
1: They've drunk the Kool-Aid. And of course, the Kool-Aid is supplied by the billionaires. People like John Stryker, who owns a medical company. Soros, again, who's pro decrim prostitution, he's putting money into it. The Pritzkers, you know, who are very big in the state of Illinois and who also, Penny Pritzker was on the Obama team. Then there's Peter Buffett, son of Warren, making billions of dollars group called Market Watch um, reckoned that in 2024 there'd be about a billion dollars of profit uh, (laughs) in this industry. You know, it it is very like the prostitution industry. It's very like the drugs industry, the arms trading industries. They're all the biggest industries and profits are there to be made.
0: Yes, so true, and it's just one facet of sort of the vortex, as you call it, that's spinning, uh, spinning, spinning out of control. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, and you write, of course, a lot about climate catastrophe. When you write about climate, you describe the bushfires in Australia, and I remember it. It must have been so terrifying or devastating. Can you talk about what, what you saw and what you thought about?
1: One of the very big fires that I, I knew about was back in 2009 when there was not one outside of Melbourne where I was living at the time and something like 170 people died in that. And I know some of the people who suffered really terrible trauma over that. But when the when 2019-2020 the fire came That was a different level and I was writing this chapter at the time and every day I would look at the news and the number of hectares was going up and up and up and by the end of the fires in about March, something like 186 million hectares were burned. Now to put that in square miles, that's 72,000 square miles or 46 million acres, there was just this enormous intensity, but also the way in which the government at the time dealt with it was terrible. They had no idea what they were doing. People were escaping from the beach in boats and the intensity of the heat was huge in a place called Malakuta, which I know. The fires just, I think, really devastated the whole of Australia. And the the people who work in the forestry area uh, and who went through the fires in places where they work and who have tried to be advisors but unsuccessfully, they say that their level of grief has just gone up. It has skyrocketed over, you know, a period of a couple of years. So it's affecting the people who know the most. Yeah. Might be able to make some good policies and proposals.
0: Yeah. What do we, how do we (laughs) turn this around?
1: What's needed? We need a radical feminist government. <laughs> Actually, maybe what we need is possibly, I'm not saying less government, but we need a government that is on the ball, probably way more women in it, because somehow women, because of our our lives and the way we experience the world, we seem to have a better understanding of consequences Women understand consequences because just walking down the street can have consequences, and we are aware of that, particularly if we're walking down the street at night time. So our consequential thinking is much stronger, and that is true also for other oppressed groups. African-Americans have a very strong sense of consequences. Aboriginal Australians do. People in poverty, people living on the poverty line, they understand that too, so I think maybe one of the things that we should institute for governments is to not have any rich people, not have the people who see themselves as the, as being at the top of the pile, but rather from below, and that would probably give us a much more understanding and forethought. And in my book, Wild politics, I talk about having a forty thousand year plan that comes from an Indigenous woman, Villa Watson, who I heard give a talk in 1984, and she said, for Aboriginal people, the future extends as far forward as the past. She said, so that means a 40,000-year plan. So if you can think long-term, if you can think about how you might want the world to look in 40,000 years, we're probably on a bit of a winner.
0: I think we absolutely need to... um think in terms of forty thousand years, of course we're we're famously short-sighted as humans
1: well no, I don't think it's a human failing, I think it's a contemporary failing yeah you you're right yeah
0: <laughs> yes <laughs> I recognize you are very right in that there are humans and there are humans
1: <laughs> that's right <laughs>
0: if you wanted to read your poem from Earth's Breath?
1: The poems in this book were written after the Category 5 cyclone, Cyclone Larry, which I went through here in 2006. And I then also started writing poems about the animals and the birds and so forth. And in far north Queensland we have beautiful green tree frogs. And this this poem gives a sense of a view from below Anthem to the Green Tree Frog, Victoria Infra frenata. Your croak wakes me from death-like sleep just as the seasons pause to reincarnate. 3 a.m. and the world hinge is swinging, opening, closing. The live and the dead are parting. You wake the dead croaking through the layers of evolution from your spot next to the screen door. The mandukya is in my ears, the Brahmins and the frogs chanting their circular breathing daily I wonder at the painted glee of your colour green so green it would make the Irish envious I find you sitting in camouflage on the edge of a leaf or as tonight belly flat against the glass door waiting for insects I found you visible as daylight as still as the sowing night air atop the iron railings You play tricks on tourists hiding inside the flange of the toilet bowl so forever after they'll see those tiny flat-ended hands grasping its humour and the joy of colour and, of course, the transforming midnight stroke. I love that. (laughs) We have to warn our visitors about the possibility of a, Green Tree Front.
0: That's a a great image. I love that. That's wonderful. It was great talking with you.
1: Thanks so much, Hale. It's been a great pleasure. All
0: right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson. And music by Beware of Darkness.